But we're going to turn in our Bibles again to our study in Romans chapter 1. It's on page 594. And I'm going to just read the same verses that I read last week. Verses 6 and 7. This is uh, coming to the end of our introduction or Paul's introduction of himself, of his subject, and uh, addressing the people that he would uh, want to read the, uh, the letter that he's written. And that's what we are about at this present moment of time. Verses 6 and 7 to call, talk to us about the recipients of the letter to the Romans. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a nice short uh, passage of scripture, so I'll read it again. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said, we are here tonight to uh, see exactly who it is that has the authority to open and to read this amazing letter. You know, whenever you see someone's name on the envelope, if it's not yours, then you dare not touch it, you dare not open it. You know, and um, I'm sure that uh, that's the, the unwritten rule uh, that, is, that exists. That if your name isn't on it, don't open it, it's got nothing at all to do with you. You know, and uh, here we are again in the letter to, uh, to Roman, to the Romans. Who is it that's entitled to open it and have a little read? Now we saw last week that it, was not a, it isn't addressed to everyone. That this isn't an open letter to everyone. It is addressed to those who are in Christ Jesus. They are the recipients of this letter. People who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have embraced the amazing love of God and find themselves inhabiting the same realm as Him. Remember we saw that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Those who are separated from everyone else since we have died and our life is hidden in Christ, in God. Those who are under a different headship being members of his kingdom, those having different priorities, being members of his body, and those who are not in any way dominated by sin or its consequences in that we have died to sin, having been raised to a newness of life. Now it matters not, as we saw last week, whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, not that that makes an awful lot of difference here tonight, but it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. All that matters to read this portion, the portion of Scripture, is that we are in Christ Jesus. And that's the important bit. That's what uh, Paul has been saying to us over this last uh, two Thursday nights. You're know, being in Christ. Certain particulars are true of us. You know, we saw last week the first particular. In, it, in our definition of true Christianity is that we are the ones who are beloved of God. You know what it is to us 
that all these manifold blessings come because of the unconditional love of God which He has set upon us unconditionally unmerited and unending that's the the recipients of this letter we are the beloved of God that's our first particular and that's what we uh, dealt with last week and so tonight we continue to look at these particulars you know as we read in our text beloved of God called to be saints that's the second and third particular that Paul wants us to understand concerning true Christianity I said last week that we need true Christians to exhibit true Christianity in our time nothing at all to do with violence or uh, lording it over people or dominating people but last week we saw that it was those that were loved by God this week we can see that it's those who are called saints now if you remember in verse 1 that Paul is described as a called or called to be an apostle and I said then that the words to be uh, have been added and shouldn't really be there and we talked about Paul being a called apostle not called to be an apostle but he was a called apostle you know and here we are we are called 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 saints people who have heard and responded to God's call you know that's important a very important uh, attribute to our Christianity so much of Christianity involves people who have not responded to the call and that's why Christianity goes off on tangents you know in certain, in certain directions that have no bearing on the word of God at all because they haven't responded to the call they've called themselves Christians but as far as God is concerned they haven't responded to the call but you and I as we sit in our seats tonight we are those who have heard the call of God and we have responded positively to that call you see having set his love upon us he then calls us and so a particular definition of a Christian is one who has received the call the call of God you know I remember many many years ago in the bush on a Sunday night I think you will remember Yori Richards uh, the, the, the stutterer and um, he used to stutter like mad until he started preaching and then he would talk fluently and then when it's time for him to shut up he stutter like mad again and say well it's time for me to shut up and uh, but one night and it's sad that this young lad didn't carry on uh, in the faith but Philip Matthews uh, was a young boy of about nine or ten and he was sitting not far from me with his mother and as Yori Richards was preaching he just out of the blue got up and said to his mother mom I can hear Jesus calling me I can hear him calling me you know on that night that young I think he might have been nine might have been a bit older than nine I can't remember exactly but I can definitely remember that night I can hear Jesus calling me and for many years he served the Lord in the bush and later on I think in Penia 
I don't know where he is now I don't know if he's serving the Lord now I don't think that he is but that's where he started from he heard the call of God no I heard the preacher I heard the gospel I heard what the man was saying from the Bible but he heard the call of God you know that's what sets people apart in the faith that's what makes people true Christians people who have heard the call and received the call of God what did Jesus say he says I did not come to call the righteous but I've come to call sinners to repentance you want to know if you agree with me and I've coined a word here that you wouldn't find in the in the dictionary because there's a big massive red line under it in my notes I find that the call of God is one of the strangeties of the Christian ministry I have no idea I cannot fathom how two people could be sitting in the same row in a church listening to the same message at exactly the same time and one walks away seemingly untouched and the other completely surrenders his life to Christ and owns him as the saviour now I'm going to be honest I can't understand how that works how the same message can have such a different impact on two people or no impact on one and such a, a, um, a radical impact on the other you know how many times have you and I been amazed as we've sat down even in this place and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached so powerfully and knowing that there were people in that gathering who didn't know the Lord as their saviour and see them getting up seemingly untouched and either going to have a cup of tea or leaving the building altogether. It's incredible because here we are thrilling to what God has done for us. No, our mouths are agape as to how much he loves us and what he did in order to secure our salvation and yet people can just get up off their seat and walk away you know and Paul sort of explains it a little in 1 Corinthians he says for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe Jews request a sign Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block to the Greeks foolishness but to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God you know now we can see it exactly what I talked about in a little meeting like this we can see on a universal scale the same message is preached to the Jews but they need a sign in order to sort of make it authentic the same is, is preached to the Gentiles or to the Greeks and they, they think it's not wise enough it's foolish to them and yet to those who have heard the call whether they are Jews makes no difference whether they are Greeks or Gentiles it makes no difference but somehow because of the hearing and receiving of the call Christ becomes something totally different to everyone else he becomes the power of God 
Because you see, he's not seen as the power of God in society. He becomes the wisdom of God. He's not seen as the wisdom of God in society unless you've received the call. And that's why it's so wonderful tonight that to be in the presence of you people and myself who have received the call and we know that Jesus is the power of God and he is the wisdom of God. We can go further. He is our redemption. He is our sanctification. He is all that we need. He's our all in all. You know, people would think we would be idiots if we said in the street that Jesus is our all in all because to them, He is a non-entity. He is an historical figure at best. But having received the call makes all the difference in the world. You know, we know that the gospel is a universal call to sinners. That's what it's about. See, to all men, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. That's what Jesus wants. That's what God wants. From Jerusalem, he says, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. In fact, God leaves no one out. The gospel is for everyone. You know, yeah, you know when we, if we were to read the scriptures properly, we would know that uh, it will be when the gospel is preached throughout the whole world, will be one of the signs that he will come again. When the gospel is preached throughout the whole world. Because he doesn't want anyone to be left out from this proclamation of hope and joy and peace and forgiveness from sin. We know that. But we also know that salvation is for only for those who hear the call. Only for those who hear the call. Only for those who respond to the call with faith and acceptance. You know, in the words of John 3, 16, there is a world that God loves enough to send His Son. There is a world that God loves enough, but there is the whosoever believes whom God saves. He doesn't save because of his love. He saves on behalf of faith. Those who believe. You see, if he saved on behalf of his love, everyone would be saved whether they have received him or not. It would be a universal uh, sort of salvation. And so many people preach that. That in the end, everything is going to be wonderful and God is going to say, you can all come in anyway. Whatever you've done, come in. How you treated me, come in. You believed in me, no, but still come in. That's the universal gospel, or the universalist gospel. But that isn't what the Bible preaches. The Bible teaches that it will be whosoever believes will be saved, will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, when Peter was on the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, and he was preaching and he was telling people about the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, we saw this a little bit on Sunday morning. You see, because far from this outpouring of the Spirit being an indiscriminate outpouring, it was only on those whom the Lord our God would call. But only on those who received the call with faith. And that's why the, the gospel message was sent out, repent, be baptized. So that you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't, he doesn't fall on everyone willy-nilly. It's believers. It's the called. 
It's those who have responded with faith. It was only on those. You know, and this is quite baffling, to say the least. But we know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And what is the Holy Spirit likened to, says Jesus? He says it's likened to the wind. It blows where it wills. You hear it, but you cannot tell where it comes from. And you definitely doesn't know, don't know where it's going. The wind is a mystery. The mystery. The Holy Spirit is a mystery. You know, and the thing is, I've talked about these two men. I don't know why I pointed at them two chairs. Because if they'd come in, they'd probably sit at the back. <laughs> Those two men that came in, and they heard the gospel at the same time, the same message, and one of them fell on his knees and cried out, what must I do to be saved? The other one just left, untouched. You know what? The mystery is that next week, he could come in and hear the message and him fall on his, on his knees and, be, uh, and cry out, what must I do to be saved? How confusing is that? How confusing is that? That the same message will be preached again to that man and he will totally surrender his life to the Lord. It's beyond my comprehension. I must be honest. Because he ignored it last week and he's completely bowled over by it this week. You know, but as Christians here tonight, you and I have heard and responded to God's call upon our lives. You know what, with Paul it is our prayer, I believe, that when we preach the gospel, you know when I stand here on this pulpit and preach the gospel, and David uh, and Janice and, uh, and Alison, when we preach uh, the gospel in this pulpit, our desire is that we are touched by the Holy Spirit. Because if it's the Holy Spirit who does the calling, the drawing, then we need Him more than we need anything else. We don't need gimmicks. You know, the church is full of gimmicks and fads. You know, and giveaways. And you know, and people telling them this, that and the other. And experiences. And power. But you see, what we need is the Holy Spirit. To touch the Word of God. In our gatherings. So that people can really hear the Word of God. Yoni Richards, you know, he... Um, those of you who don't know him, he was a, a character of a man from, well he's from Wales originally, but he was living in Nottingham and he used to come down with his Hawaiian guitar and lead us in worship. And you know in the beginning you'd be put off by his stuttering and his stammering because he would be, he would be going blue in the face and trying to get a word out. And I can remember when Em used to help him and he used to say, Em used to say such and such and he'd say no. <laughs> no it wasn't that word I wasn't, I wasn't trying to get that word out you know and you would think to yourself that everyone would shut off you know like people who love you know I love you know, I love, love. <laughs> perhaps it's a, it's a bit of a strong word but he's come to our house for tea and uh, we got on really well with him and you know you would your heart would go out to him for a bit and then you'd persevere and listen but I suppose that people outside would uh, or just people who didn't know him would be shut off because of his uh, disability but this young lad as young as he was you did the Lord call him you know and I find that most incredible you know and I brethren says Paul when I came to you did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God 
For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. You know, Pauline will say to me sometimes, Why are you so nervous? Eh? Why are you so nervous? You know, I've got to be honest, sometimes when I preach, I'm so nervous. And you know, when I, when I look at the, those words, I, I feel quite at home because here is my Paul who had been to heaven, he'd seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he'd been endowed with all his gifts, he was called an apostle of Christ, he'd been given a mandate to speak to kings and to paupers, to Jews and to Gentiles, and yet when he went to this Corinthian city, he went in fear, in weakness, and in much trembling. And I thought to myself, well, he's my type of guy, because he's not bold in his approach. In fact, some people said that you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't think that he would have any charisma at all uh, when he preached. But he didn't need it. He didn't need any of that because he preached Christ and him crucified. That was the important part about Paul. And that's the important part about every preacher. You know, some people that they can do, they can do gestures and they can do, give stories and they can do this, that and the other and keep a, a congregation spellbound. But then someone else then can be dead and keep a congregation spellbound because they preach Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with pervasive words of human wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power you know that's the prayer that I have the prayer for, I pray for everyone that we would all have this demonstration of the spirit and of power in our preaching in our <coughs> preaching in order that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God who is the power of God? Jesus is the power of God we just read that so our faith is not in the, the wisdom of men, but in Christ. Because he is the most important uh, person. You know, it is the Holy Spirit then who brings the message of the cross to life. And it is our greatest desire that he is active in our lives and in our ministry so that we see others one for Christ and called into the kingdom. So we can see the calling. God has called us. Christ has called us into the kingdom and it's important that that has happened because if it hasn't then we're not in the kingdom you know you don't get into the kingdom unless you're called into the kingdom mm. and you listen to that call and you respond to that call <coughs> so what about this other that word well, this is quite an, an interesting word called saints saints now, you might be looking at me in this pulpit tonight and think he's no saint and they're going to be honest in, the, in a a very real way you'd be right I'm no saint and some of you might be thinking I don't want to be a saint no who wants to be a saint no if you were if to be a saint you've got to be dead first no it's years you've got to be dead years you've got to be mouldering in your grave for years before someone will think no he was a good guy we'll canonize him and make him a saint you want on top of that you'd have to have lived some kind of life a perfect life as far as people are concerned or even died a martyr's death Saint doesn't appeal to me when you talk about it in terms like that 
that you've got to be perfect in your life or you've got to be a martyr in your death you've got to be in your grave for so many years so someone will, before someone will say let's make him a saint so sainthood isn't for me I'm going to be honest and I suppose that you would say the same I don't want to be a saint if that's what it takes but when, you write, when I'm reading this passage of scripture I can see that Paul was writing to people who hadn't yet died which is always a good thing if you're going to write a letter, write a letter to a living person rather than a dead person. Dead people never respond to your letters. I've noticed that. So he's looking, he's writing to people who hadn't yet died. And do you know if we went to Corinthians again and read Corinthians and see what they were getting up to in their spare time and some of the things that they got up to really would really make your hair good if you read it uh, and took away the sort of the the biblical of it and realize exactly what the Bible is saying you know you think to yourself that uh, these people you know they, they, they didn't deserve to be in chapel let alone be in the Bible and be called saints because that's what they were called when Paul addressed his letter to Corinthians he called them saints and then he went on to say what they were what they did what they said you know, they were the furthest thing from a saint that I can ever imagine anyone to be. So they were alive for a start, and they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They weren't what we would call saints. So it's time really to find out what a saint really is, I think. Because we've got this idea of what they are, and yet when Paul writes in his epistles, he blows that definition completely out of the water and presents us with something totally different. You know, there is a basic uh, definition of a saint. It's someone who has received the call that I've already talked about. And it's as simple as that. Someone who has heard the gospel you heard God calling him through the gospel heard it received it and moved into it that's all it is that's what a saint really is and if you read Paul's letters and there are 12 or 13 of his letters in the scriptures you will find that he addresses every Christian he writes to as saints and if he came into this hall tonight he would address you and me as saints so it isn't for the few sainthood isn't for the few who seem to stand out in the eyes of someone else you know there must be some kind of committee that sit and think who are we going to canonize or who are we going to sort of make moves to canonize let's look at the history books let's see the exploits let's see the lifestyles let's see what they achieved the people they touched and then they sit down and think, well, this one is a great candidate to be a saint. There's a, there'd only be a few. You know, this committee of non-saints were responsible for making people saints. You know, and that confuses everything, doesn't it? And not open a non-saint, refer another one, as, uh, or confer upon another one, sainthood. doesn't work. Not in, not in my book. But that's not what sainthood is all about. Every Christian who has heard the call and responded to the call 
and become a part of the body of Christ into the kingdom of Christ is called a saint. No matter how far up the spiritual ladder they may have climbed. Oh, he was a pastor for 60 years in the biggest church uh, in London. There's a saint. Oh, he was the this. There's a saint. No. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved is called a saint. Therefore, you and I are saints. So whether you like it or not, you are looking at a saint. <laughs> and whether I like it or not, I'm looking at a couple as well. So here we are. We're in this little room, all on our own, and we are saints together, uh, worshipping the Lord. Basically the word means the Holy One. Which you know, is a bit heavy. <laughs> a Holy One. The word saint and the word holy, of course, come from the same uh, Greek word. But we could simplify things a little if we went to the Old Testament. And had a look um, how the word holy is used in the Old Testament. And we can see that it means something or someone who is separated unto God for service and for praise. Someone who is separated, set apart unto God for service and for praise. Let's think of the holy things that we find in the Old Testament. You know, Moses was told to take his shoes off when he stood by the burning bush. You want know, God give him an explanation as to why. He says, because the ground that he's standing on is holy ground. It's a, it was a patch of ground in the desert that had been set apart for service. He was a man who stood on it and he had to take his shoes off in order to approach a holy God. The ground had become a servant of God. And the ground, the ground had become a praise unto God. Just simply because God's presence was there. As I've said so many times, if Moses had gone back there the day after, he could have walked on it with obnail boots. It would have made no difference at all. Because the ground wasn't holy anymore. Because it had served its purpose. Now if he was to go to the tabernacle, the tabernacle in the tabernacle there were numbers of utensils. Snuffers that used to snuff out the uh, the candles. There was candlesticks. There was la- uh, there was a laver. There was a table, and they were called holy. Holy. Why? Because they were used in praise and service to God. Now, in the tents around the tabernacle, there were snuffers for candles. There were lavers to wash in. There were shovels to shovel in. But you see, none of them things were called holy because they hadn't been dedicated to the Lord in service and in praise. So when we think about this word holy and this word saint, we are dealing with something or someone who had been set apart for service to God and praise. No wonder, um, of course, the, the children of Israel. What were they called? They were called a holy nation. And God had called them uh, out of Egypt and he had conferred this title on them, the holy nation. What were they? They were a nation that was separate from all the others in order to serve God through the tabernacle and the, the, um, the sacrificial system and the priesthood 
and more particularly in the lineage of, uh, of the Messiah so that they could uh, be, bring glory and honor to, to God through their lifestyles and their message. And in fact, if he was to go to Ezekiel chapter 5, you will find that God says, I've placed you at the center of the world in order for you, for people to see who I am. Set apart. They fail miserably to be what God wanted them to be. You know, and we know now, don't we, that Peter has told us in his first epistle and chapter 2 that you and I, those of us who have... Uh, accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour we, we now are his holy nation that's what he says uh, in chapter 2 he says that you are a chosen generation you are uh, a royal priesthood you are a holy nation a peculiar people in order that you may proclaim the praises of God of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So what, what are we? We are people who have been set apart in order to serve him. We serve him in the word. We serve him in worship. We serve him in uh, ministry, in witness. And we bring the light, his light into the world around so that he receives all the praise. So what is a saint? Is a saint somebody with a shiny plate at the back of their head who was venerated by this one and that one who was a picture on a wall of a church or is the saint someone who gets his hands dirty in a sinful world bringing Christ to those who are around and about because that's what these saints are that's what genuine saints are you know and um, truly when we think about being a holy nation it must be more than words no, this has to be a, have a bearing on the way we live our lives before God and yes, the way we live our lives before men as well. Now Paul has got an awful lot to say about uh, how we live our lives before God and how we live our lives before men. That's why I read the passage from Colossians tonight. Colossians chapter 2. Because in that passage of scripture we are told that the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in the Lord the pleroma of God dwells in Jesus. And then he says, but then he goes on to say, and you or we are complete in him. Mm -hmm. The pleroma, the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And the word complete is the word pleroma. The pleroma of Christ dwells in us. So therefore, uh, being in Christ Jesus, being complete in Christ Jesus, I suppose would conjure up the thought that Christ is our only means of sustenance. See, if he completes us, then he must have everything we need. Every need that we have is supplied in this one person because he completes us. In him, says Paul, we live and move and have our being. That is, we live our own lives in the sphere of Christ's lordship and his sustenance. He's everything to us. Everything we need is found in Christ. You know, it's almost as if God, when he calls us to faith, actually puts us 
in a place that has a boundary or a fence. Humanities, as we live and move and have our being within the confines of that boundary, so the benefits of being in Christ come to us. The reality of being in Christ comes to us as we remain in this fenced area of Christ. A boundary. As I said, it's set apart. We are separate from the world. And therefore there has to be some kind of boundary between us and the world. And that's where God has actually placed us. No, there are, we know that there are things that are outside that boundary that are not available to us. They're not good for us. You know, and I suppose that that is exactly where the battle lines are drawn. Because we don't think they are not good for us. And we think that we can go out and touch and taste and see what is out there for us. But there's a boundary. There's a boundary here. And sometimes we go out and we bring things in that shouldn't really be there. And that's, I suppose, is the problem that you and I have got as saints. That's why we don't see ourselves as saints. Because we know that we've strayed outside the boundary. We know that we've picked up things, looked around and snuck them back in. And here we are in Christ, and yet we have things in our lives that definitely shouldn't be there. And that the idea of sainthood just sort of diminishes by the minute because of what we do and what we think and what we've said. We are guilty of bringing things in that should be left outside. You know, and I suppose what I've, I've called that in times gone by, the sanctification gap. Because what we are in Christ, and how God sees us as holy, or as saints, and if we keep to our text, you put that up against the reality of our walk. Now here we are, in Christ, redeemed, sanctified, pure, seated in heavenly places with Him, free from sin, free from the dominion of sin. Free from the power of sin. Free from the reign of sin. You know, if you say, oh, this is wonderful. What a place to be in. We are complete in Jesus. Saints of the living God. That's all wonderful. And then we think of our walk. We go through the door. And the world is your oyster. Everything is there on show. Everything is there available to us all. You know, and the, the reality of our walk which has so many flaws. We make so many mistakes. We fail so often. And we fall. You know, and there's a, there's a conflict in us. There's a battle going on inside of us. We are complete in Christ. All our needs are supplied because we enjoy such union with Him. And yet at the same time, we're looking over the fence and we look for other things that would give us pleasure or enhance our lifestyle or do this or do that you know and um, there's a tension there I hope it's the same with you because it's definitely with me I don't, I'm not pointing any fingers I'm just saying that there's a tension in which we live our lives as saints in a world that doesn't belong to God or doesn't or militates against God's desires 
Here we are walking in it. Set apart from it. And yet we see it. We hear it. We smell it. And we can feel it. And we can taste it. Being in Christ. Saints. It means we've left the world. We belong to it no more. You know just like the Israelites when they left Egypt. And the sea came rolling back in. And Egypt no longer was their home. Was, had no longer had any influence on them. And yet as we read through the, the 40 year tread across the desert. How many people really wanted to go back? Because there was things in Egypt that they thought oh wasn't it wonderful when we were back there. You know the, the cucumbers and the onions and the garlic. Couldn't have been too bad in Egypt because all those things are, are wonderful. But they couldn't. They could entertain thoughts. But they couldn't go back because there was no way back. You want know, the same as Christians. We've left the world. And there is no way back. It's gone. It's gone from us. And yet how much we long for some of its pleasures and its pursuits. And the things that would tear us away from God you know and it makes no difference whether you are mature in the faith or whether you are a babe uh, in Christ whether we are well versed in the scriptures and we live accordingly or we are ignorant of the scriptures and we live according to that if we have received the call then we have left the world and our place is in Christ you know Paul gives us uh, some very confusing messages in Philippians chapter 2. Isn't this? He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not all as in my presence only, but how now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I can understand that until he gets to the next bit. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure so Paul says on the one hand he seems to be telling us that this Christian life is down to us and then he explained that it's God who is at work his wonders to perform work out your own salvation for it is God who works in us to do and to will and to do the things that bring him pleasure working out your own salvation would imply that you and I are working towards sainthood you know and that, that can be very discouraging I think if you and I thought that we were working towards sainthood, we would all say it's difficult. It's a strain. But somehow we're going to get there. You know, with your fingers crossed and everything else crossed, somehow we're going to get there. Working out your own salvation. But God at work in us will tell us that we start as saints. I hope you can understand this because it's, uh, it's really lovely. We start as saints as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit and then by playing our own part we be, it becomes increasingly evident that we are saints. Oh, I don't know about you but I'd rather the second one. Wouldn't you? That I knew an infidel. Sainthood is over there. You know and there is this obstacle course to sainthood and I'm looking at it and thinking I'd love to be over there, set apart for God and His service and His 
and his worship and everything. But, but look, I get, I gotta get over this, and I gotta get over that, and I gotta get over. That. I never get there. And that's how some people see sainthood. How are we gonna achieve? How are we gonna get over these obstacles to get to there? And then God comes along and says, "But God is in you." And and all of a sudden, it's a different ball game because sainthood had moved from there to you. And all of a sudden, immediately that I'm saved, I become a saint. But there's still an obstacle course to get there. But you know, if I get over five obstacles and fail, I'm still a saint. If I get over ten obstacles and fail, I'm still a saint. If I go over forty obstacles and fail, I'm still a saint. Why? Because I was a saint to start with. And all God wants me to do is to act like a saint. And if I fail, forgiveness is there. <coughs> and I will act like a saint again. <coughs> so sainthood is not something I'm achieving. It's something I'm working from. And it's a lot easier to do that. It's a lot easier to do that. To work from being a saint to sanctification. Because every uh, sort of uh, victory I have enhances not my sainthood, but my understanding of sainthood. And you know, God's view of me will never change. Your view of me might. You know, if I could get to that place over there, you'd be thinking, Oh, what a saint. What a saint. Look what he's done. Look what he's achieved. But you see, God said that to me while I was still by you. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. That I'm a saint by you before I ever tried to get over there. Because that's what the blood of Christ has done for me. He's cleansed me from all unrighteousness. You know how many times have we been halfway through and we've been so discouraged because we've failed. Because we've fallen into sin. Because we've done something we shouldn't do. Or we've said something. Or we've looked at something we shouldn't do. And we think, oh no, what type of saint am I? And then up where I look and see him there. Who made an end to all my sin and separated me unto himself for eternity as a saint of God. Yes, that gives me more of a spur to get over there. Because I'm not getting over there now because my life depends upon it. I'm getting over there now because my love of God depends upon it. My service, my worship, and my praise. And I want to show people around about what God has done for me so that he'll get all the glory and not me and that's what being a saint is you might think you say I'm no saint no of course you're not a saint in your own right but God looks at you and sees sainthood written all over you now he said now I made you a saint get going and be one and even if you fail you're still a saint and I want to thank God for that because it takes the pressure out of it all yes I want to be like Jesus but you see, I started off like him. Because I'm in him. And he in me. You know, we are one together for eternity. And whether I fail or succeed, it'll make no difference to his love for me. And his sight of me. And his perception of me. You know, of course we want to be like Jesus. You know, we want to narrow that gap between what God sees us and what we are ourselves. We want the Word and the Spirit to interact in our lives, to knock off the rough edges. Of course we do. To be like Jesus, all I want is to be like Jesus. But my salvation doesn't depend upon me achieving it all. 
because he's already achieved it in me. I am called a called saint of God. You know, and that's the, uh, the essence of the Christian life. Aiming to be what God has called us to be and made us in a society that militates against everything he wishes for us. You know, when we look at our record, our track record, and we see failure and mishap and sin, you name it, it has come and slapped us on the face. More than once. It causes misery and pain. Get by the bucket load. Condemnation and discouragement by the tongue. So what do we need to move on in God? Well, we need His grace and His peace. That's the essential things that you and I need. If we're going to get over these obstacles, which we want to. We're going to need His grace because we're going to fail. And grace says, let's get back up again. Let's move on a little bit further. I believe, let's get back up again. You know what, grace. We could talk about grace all the time. We need His grace and we need His peace. You know what, no matter how long you've been serving the Lord, our need of grace and our need of peace is as acute now as it ever was. And that's why Paul finishes his introduction with a prayer for these ministries from God. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. I, I love the word riches there. Yeah, because I need more grace than I think anyone's got. But He's got riches. No one could we ever outdo the grace of God? Well, not while he's in receipt of riches. No, he got more, he got more grace than, than he can deal with. That's God. More grace than ever we could ever think. You know, we could reflect on what Paul says again in Romans chapter 6. But where sin abounded, grace abounded so much more. No, I don't think, and this is a word from the Lord for you. I don't think God is going to run out of grace anytime soon. You are? I've said it. <laughs> I don't think God is going to run out of grace anytime soon. So we've got no worries whatsoever. None whatsoever. We can fall and fail a hundred times before we get there and there will be a hundred portions of grace set up. Isn't that wonderful? Riches. Where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. And then, peace. I think we all need the peace of God. But do you know that God is referred to in the scriptures as the God of peace. The God of peace. In other words, peace originates in Him and peace em emanates from Him. We say it, don't we? He is our peace. Broken down every wall. He is our Cast all your cares, all your burdens on Him. Why? Well, because... He cares for you. And He's your peace. You know, when we come to the end of Romans, we'll see two verses that sort of sum up the extravagance of peace. I love our word extravagance. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the best prayer of all. In the God of peace. Because the world needs peace. Christians need peace. Individuals need peace. No one individual needs peace. I don't know many times a day. Because something might go on in his mind. Or in his heart. 
and it robs us of our peace and then there's this surge of God's love and grace and peace comes again you know and it's it originates in God and it emanates from him God now the God of peace be with you all and then he, and last he says and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you Amen these are great encouraging words for us you know very fair with any feel like saints in this life if I was to have a straw poll uh, about, you know there if we could have uh, about 40 people to collect the uh, the notes the yes or no's from the pe- people in the congregation then I would think that very few of us would call ourselves saints that, that's, that's not how we would think of ourselves but I hope that tonight our understanding of such a concept has been made more clear to us and I hope that the mechanics of grace and peace have been even uh, and, or I have made even the reality, reality of it more feasible and sustainable God's grace and God's peace because that is what God wants to bless us with grace and peace so let's think about who we are. We are those that are in Christ. In Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He is our Sustainer. He is everything. He is our Redeemer. He is the one who has reconciled us back to the Father. We are in Christ. And then of course we are beloved of God. He has set His love on us. And then we are called. He has called us through the Gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and then we are saints he has set his righteousness on us we stand in his holiness and even though we haven't got there yet he still looks at us as perfect in Christ and then of course to oil the mechanics of all that we've got his grace and we've got his peace they the people that Paul is writing to and I believe that they are the people that populate this place on a Thursday night as we sit and listen to God's word and I pray that that would become true of us that we would be assured that we would be encouraged and we would be changed by the knowledge of who we are in Christ because you see if, if we are not those people then this letter means nothing to us it will have nothing to say to us but if we are those people, and I pray that each and every one of us are, that this letter has so much to say to us. And I pray that that would be the case as this year or next year goes on and on and on as we listen to God's word speaking to us through this epistle to the Romans. For his name's sake. Amen.